This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Out of the Blue Podcast. I'm Nitin Seem, and today I'm again joined by Ganesh Raghu and Kevin Wilson to complete our discussion of the clinical practice guideline from ATS, ERS, JRS, and ALAT on the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. In our last discussion, we talked about the history of the guideline, the process of guideline development, and the non-invasive workup. Now, you know, we've, we get to the point now where we start to talk about what invasive workup and, and when that will be appropriate. And so the, the, the third question was, uh, should patients with newly detected ILD of unknown cause or suspected of having IPF undergo BAL with cellular analysis of fluid? And then uh, we spent that time talking about pattern because the, the panel distinguished between the HRCT pattern of UIP versus those whose HRCT shows probably or indeterminate or an alternative diagnosis, as you just mentioned. So clearly, it seems that um, it seems that just in, in, in speaking to other pulmonologists, the question of when to perform BAL and suspected IPF is, is one that uh, often elicits uh, strong opinions. So I was hoping you could talk us through your thoughts and, and recommendations regarding BAL and cellular analysis of fluid. Okay, Nitin. Uh, again, to remind the to remind the listeners, back in 2011, the bronchial lavage question was discussed and addressed. And the recommendations then were made that if a person had a definite UIP pattern, meaning that pattern with the honeycombing and the lower low predominant pattern that we describe as UIP pattern, the bronchial lavage cellular analysis was not recommended Although we made a remark that in some centers familiar with bronchovalvular lavage that may opt to do the bronchovalvular lavage. What has happened since then, it has become clear that the bronchovalvular lavage at least has been done more liberally and routinely in Europe um, for evaluation for interstitial lung disease of phenomenology. And now that we have refined the criteria to the probable UIP pattern, and the indeterminate pattern, the importance of distinguishing these clinical scenarios based on the pattern was surfaced in this new guideline. We also felt that the age is an important determinant factor. So the two clinical scenarios based on the likelihood of possibility of entertaining of the diagnosis uh, of IPF given the age. So for example, in the appropriate clinical setting, suspected to have IPF, which we define in this clinical guidelines of what the typical patient or who the typical patient of IPF is, is a 60-year-old man or 60-plus-year-old man with no history of exposure attributable to the manifested interstitial lung disease or connective tissue disease. The yield of the bronchoval of our cellular analysis was low in a patient with a definite UIP pattern compared to the patient with the other patterns. So in other words, even though the person may be 60 plus years without exposure, but then if you have a probable UIP pattern or an indeterminate pattern or an alternate diagnosis, the committee felt that 
the recommendation for bronchial lavage ought to be considered, acknowledging that the evidence, however, was a low quality. Then that's the recommendation for the bronchial lavage in this clinical scenario was a conditional one. So I, I think that that's an important point, and I was hoping, Ganesh, you could you could clarify that for our listeners. And, and Kevin, obviously, if you had anything to add, can you that that distinction of a conditional recommendation? Can you explain that uh, for our listeners? Do you want me to take this one, Ganesh? No, you no. I think it will be good coming from you in terms of this conditional recommendations, the implementations of it, and what it signifies. Sure. So. Um, the ATS uses the GRADE approach to um, determining or rating the strength of recommendations. Grading stands for uh, Grading, Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. And uh, GRADE rates the strength of recommendations as either strong or alternatively as conditional. Conditional is the, the new term for what used to be a weak recommendation. So when a committee makes a strong recommendation, it's essentially conveying four ideas. A strong recommendation says that this is the correct thing to do for the vast majority, say greater than 95% of patients. They're telling the clinician, just do it. Don't think about it. Don't slow down. Just do it. Um, they're conveying that this is the type of, of action that if one of your colleagues didn't do, you'd be willing to call them out for it as having done the wrong thing. And also strong recommendations are appropriate for performance metrics. In contrast, a clinical, uh, I'm sorry, a conditional recommendation conveys different information. It says, we believe that this is the right thing to do for the majority of the patients, but it may not be the right thing to do for a sizable minority of the patients. It says, slow down, think about it, uh, don't just do it, uh, discuss with the patient, and then decide. Uh, this is the type of, of recommendation where you would not be willing to tell a colleague that he or she did the wrong thing if they didn't follow it. You might say, oh, this is clinical style, or this is just clinic, there's clinical equipoise. And finally, these are not appropriate as performance measures. Uh, so by making a clinical, rec I'm sorry, I keep saying it, a conditional recommendation for uh, the BAL uh, question, what they're essentially saying is that there is um, some clinical equipoise that can be inserted into the situation. It does not need to be done for 95% of the patients. It's probably correct for the majority of the patients, but it may not be right for a sizable minority of patients. I think that that is really a helpful clarification um, for our listeners. And just, just wrapping up this part of the discussion, you know, I thought it was actually helpful when uh, the the panel wrote in, in this section that you know, depending on what they can, the the alternative diagnosis one is considering, uh, cellular analysis most helpful in things like eosinophilic pneumonia, sarcoidosis, and obviously infection. Dr. Ragu, I'd like to to move on to the question about surgical lung biopsy, and um, and whether that should be performed in newly di detected ILD of unknown cause in patients who are clinically suspected of ha of having IPF. It seems that this is a difficult question to answer just because the data that's out there, you know, there are different study designs, inconsistent findings, the worries about selection bias. And again, the, the panel's suggestion depended on uh, HRCT pattern. But could you talk us through uh, the panel's findings and considerations for surgical lung biopsy? Yes, Nitin. Obviously, this is an extremely important uh, component of the guideline in terms of uh, subjecting patients to the surgical lung biopsy 
which requires general anesthesia and uh, relative risks are concerned. In this particular guideline, we also give a, a list of uh, uh, contraindications or high risks uh, for surgical lung biopsy associated problems. So when we are recommending the surgical lung biopsy, it goes without saying we're recommending for the patient who does, does not have the risks, high risks for poor outcomes and complications associated with the surgical lung biopsy. Now that said and clear is this guideline is for predominantly the typical patient suspected to have IPF is a 60 year old, 60 plus year old man with no exposure history attributable or capable of causing interstitial lung disease and our other clinical features of connective tissue disease. This guideline is no real major difference compared to the 2011 guidelines as far as the recommendation for the patient who has the pattern of usual interstitial pneumonia pattern with the honeycomb pattern. So the recommendation for the patient who is 60 plus year old who has a CT pattern of UIP with the honeycombing is really unchanged from 2011 guideline. In other words, there is no need for added benefit for that kind of a patient to be subjected to surgical lung biopsy. And so therefore, the recommendation was made against surgical lung biopsy for that patient. The one different thing here for the 2018 guideline is it emphasized the, the need for the multidisciplinary discussion even for the patient with the usual interstitial pneumonia pattern, because the multidisciplinary discussion might come up with some other clinical features that might sway away from the diagnosis of IPF because UIP pattern can also occur in chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So the multidisciplinary discussion will help sort that out and decide whether we need to subject the patient with the UIP pattern for other invasive diagnostics such as the bronchial lavages we just now talked about. The need for obtaining the surgical lung biopsy for any other pattern, which includes the probable UIP and indeterminate pattern, as well as the alternative diagnosis, will depend on case-by-case -case basis and the multidisciplinary discussion. And again, the consideration of the surgical lung biopsy is only for patients who do not have high risks for surgical complications. I hope that's uh, uh, a little bit clearer than than what it was in 2011 guidelines. Yeah, I, I think that is actually uh, uh, clearer there. And I, I did want to follow up a bit on that because there's a, you know, the, the Fleischner Society also uh, published their consensus, consensus statement on diagnostic criteria for IPF in 2018. And, and the ATS, ERS, JRS, ALAC guideline is very similar to the, the Fleischer Society um, consensus statement, other than uh, regarding the need for, for a surgical lung biopsy in the probable UIP pattern noted on HRCT. So I, I was hoping you could take a moment to sort of, to, to address that, why the panel suggested surgical lung biopsy in those patients with probable UIP um, in contrast to the Fleischer Society um, statement. Okay, okay, Nitin. Uh, this is also another important uh, contribution um, in, in the literature for the guidelines for diagnosis of IPF. The Fleshner Society document uh, authored by uh, uh, many authors who are also the authors of the IPF guideline committee 
as you have rightly said, there are a lot of similarities. So it's very complementary in terms of the uh, recommendations made uh, in the Fleshner Society uh, document as well. Now, in fact, uh, in, uh, in an editorial that Kevin Wilson, myself, and Luca Ricaldi, who is the co-chair for the guideline, uh, um, has written an editorial uh, comparing the recommendations made by experts uh, serving both the societies uh, in this month, uh, uh, European Respiratory Journal. So I'd alert the uh, listener and the reader to uh, skim through that to get a little bit more insight to compare uh, the similarities as well as the subtle differences between these two documents. The Fleischer Society statement must be acknowledged is uh, uh, based on consensus of the expert opinion. Whereas the guideline utilized the robust methodology to address the specific questions in the PICO format. The Fleshner Society does not use the PICO format uh, to address the specific uh, questions, and therefore there are some subtle differences in the methodology, even though both guidelines were, or both documents were based on systematic reviews. So the recommendations made in the guideline reflects the consensus of the voting of the panelists following the discussion of the evidence synthesized by the methodologists with the experts. So with the subtle differences of recommending the biopsy as a conditional recommendation for the patient with a probable UIP, putting an emphasis on the multidisciplinary discussion based on clinical scenario is a subtle difference between the, these two documentation that will allow the confronted patient as well as the physician to make the most appropriate decision for subjecting that patient to the surgical lung biopsy or not. Yeah, well, well thank you for that clarification. I think that's very, very helpful. And now following up, uh, um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, uh, transbronchial biopsy um, and ask Ganesh about that as well. Um, you attempted to answer whether that would be a reasonable alternative to surgical lung biopsy in patients with newly detected ILD suspected of IPF. Again, it seems a, a difficult question to answer because in the in the relevant studies, uh, oftentimes patients weren't stratified by an HRCT pattern. So while acknowledging that, um, I guess the, the question that a practicing pulmonologist would, would want to note, how often would a transbronchial biopsy avoid the need for surgical lung biopsy, and, and what, did, what did the panel recommend? Nitya, uh, the panel really reviewed all diagnostic interventions and uh, uh, procedures very carefully to make the appropriate diagnosis for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis with the histopathology features. So the transbronchial lung biopsy question was therefore revisited in the 2018 guidelines appropriately. And after reviewing all the evidence to date with our methodologists who synthesized the evidence very beautifully and carefully, the panel was unable to make a recommendation regarding the transbronchial lung biopsy based on the paucity of the uh, evidence. So we felt that the transbronchial lung biopsies, therefore we couldn't make a, a specific recommendation based on the paucity of the evidence and remarked that this specific question needs to be addressed by future studies that recognizing that there are maybe some molecular probes and machine learning techniques, that there is some data that is accumulating, but the committee 
who reviewed it felt that it was not sufficient evidence to make a recommendation as such, but remarked to the possibility of future studies that might surface the need for transbronchial lung biopsies on new evidence in future. I, I think that that's really an important point. What you mentioned, there's a paucity of data, but obviously going forward, if you're going to get that tissue, are there new diagnostics like molecular probes and so forth that can um, improve the yield? Um, and, and just to follow up, you also looked at uh, transbronchial lung cryobiopsy, which is you know, appears to be promising due to being able to get larger specimens than the conventional transbronchial biopsies. Um, and just to ask you if you could tell our listeners what you found in terms of yield there and what you recommended based on, on the available literature. Yeah. Uh, again, this issue of obtaining a lung tissue is for patients who do not have the definitive UIP pattern uh, in the appropriate clinical situation. So if transbronchial lung cryobiopsies will obtain a little bit bigger piece than the transbronchial lung biopsy to enhance the yield of the histopathology features, then one would think that transbronchial lung cryobiopsy uh, would be an appropriate consideration. And as you said, yes, there are promises. But after reviewing the data at length, the panel acknowledged that the transbronchial lung cryobiopsy indeed has promises, but made no recommendations. The reason that we, they made no recommendation was based on the evidence. And one of the most important need was felt that there was no standardization of the technique, and that needs to be developed before recommending it in routine clinical practice. Now, that said, the panel was appropriately um, looking at all the data and remarked on the allowance of the procedure of cryobiopsy to be done only by experienced experts and centers familiar with the technique and handling complications. So that was, that was a remark. In other words, if there are experts and experienced centers who have already have a track record of obtaining cryobiopsies and be able to handle the complications, the panel did not have any reservations to allow those centers and experienced experts to continue their practices of cryobiopsy. So the importance of standardization of the technique of cryobiopsy was emphasized and that needs to be developed before recommending it as a routine uh, clinical practice on a day-to-day -day basis for patients now. Yeah. Well, 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 thank you for that. And, and so, and just, just clarifying, so you recommend if a patient has a, a UIP pattern, you would not pursue cryobiopsy in, in those, in that subgroup of patients, correct? That is correct. Okay, great. Yep. I just wanted to highlight that for the listeners. And then just a general question for you, Ganesh, about uh, the, you know, biopsy is, you know, there's obviously we just discussed several ways to pursue tissue. I think the fear of a lot of practicing clinicians is that, you know, will that sort of accelerate the course of disease? And um, you know, it seems like there must be more work to do, but were you able in your, in the panel's review, able to determine the effects of the actual biopsy itself on the clinical trajectory of, um, of IPF? Um, again, an important question, Nitin. Um, as you very well know, 
best guidelines focused on the ascertainment of the diagnosis and refining the diagnostic criteria. It didn't focus on the prognosis uh, part of it as far as the trajectory of the disease course. Now, your question is in terms of the complications. Now, with the surgical lung biopsies not to be done in patients uh, who are at risk for surgical complications, so the surgical lung biopsies was not recommended, and we provide the the relative risks um, uh, in a patient who has very severe disease based on lung function impairment, such as the severe diffuse uh, lung capacity and oxygen supplementation requirements and pulmonary hypertension. So those are the patients who would not do well, and this is based on epidemiological studies that has been done with the, uh, who, uh, that has documented the relative risks of patients subjected to surgical lung biopsy. So this particular guideline, therefore, really looked into it and for elective patients or patients for elective needs for surgical lung biopsy, it was felt that the benefits would outweigh the risks uh, for that patient who does not have the surgical lung biopsy risk. So, so that is basically how we made the recommendation for the surgical lung biopsies in the patient who is uh, able to withstand the complications of the surgical lung biopsy. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I know that's a little bit off of uh, the course of the diagnostics, but I think it's just such a fascinating clinical question. While I had you on, I had to ask. <laughs> Actually, Nitin, if I could just add, uh, a couple of times you asked uh, very quantitative questions like how often would a diagnosis be made, um, et cetera, with various procedures. I just want to draw the uh, listener's attention to the fact that there is an online supplement that was um, published along with the guideline, which is quite extensive. And in that uh, online supplement are all the estimates uh, that were provided and presented to the guideline panel and that they used to uh, formulate their recommendations. So anybody that wants specific numbers beyond what is in the written guideline themselves can go to the, the online supplement. The one thing I should emphasize about the estimates in the online supplement though, is that all of the evidence uh, for the most part was uncontrolled, uh, very low quality, and therefore you have to have low confidence in the accuracy of those estimates. The other thing is that all of the studies uh, just mixed patients together. They did not segregate patients who had a high-resolution pattern of UIP or a high-resolution pattern of something other than UIP. And therefore, when the committee um, took in these numbers, when the numbers were presented to them, they had to consider how might these numbers be different in those populations before making the recommendations. But I just wanted to point out to the listeners that those numbers are available. Kevin, thank you very much for uh, reiterating that aspect of what the uh, supplement has for the listener and the reader to look into it uh, in a detailed manner. But that said, Nitin, I also want to point out again is that the surgical lung biopsies recommendations made is conditional as well because of what Kevin just now said, the quality of the evidence even for the surgical lung biopsies was low. So the recommendations made for the surgical lung biopsies for the patient who does not have the UIP pattern, but has the probable UIP or indeterminate or the alternative diagnosis pattern is still conditional recommendation, not a strong recommendation. 
Well, thank you for that, that uh, clarifying that point again. Um, and I think that the, the, there is a wealth of data in the supplement, and I do encourage our listeners to go to that to, to put a, a finer point on, on many of these issues we discuss. Uh, I wanted to move on, Ganesh, to uh, the multidisciplinary discussion. And the panel was uh, uh, tried to address the question of, how, of, of the utility for, of, the, of the MDD for diagnosing decision-making regarding newly detected ILD that is suspected of IPF. So what did the panel find in terms of how helpful MDD was in helping come to the correct diagnosis and what is known specifically of the optimal structure of MDD as, you know, different uh, hospitals uh, try to configure those in the, in the most appropriate manner? Um, okay, so I will, I'll address this, um, Nitin, um, um, if you may, um, so or if I may. So... Given the fact that the diagnosis depends on the HRCT images in all patients and histopathology features in lung biopsy in patients subjected to lung biopsy procedure, as well as the potential concern of the possibility of connective tissue disease, the need for interpretation and discussions with experts in multidisciplines is a must. And therefore, the need for multidisciplinary discussion is obvious. It, by virtue of the definition of these multidisciplines. It is a multidisciplinary discussion because it includes minimum pulmonologists, radiologists, and patients and pathologists when lung biopsy is obtained, and rheumatologists on a case-by-case basis. So therefore, it is by virtue a multidiscipline discussion. That happens uh, in clinical practice all the time, but we formalized the need for it in this guideline, looking at the evidence that there was. And the evidence of that, we admit that the evidence was also low quality, but the recommendations for the multidisciplinary discussions were also made as a conditional one. The optimal structure of the infrastructure of the multidisciplinary discussion was deferred to the local infrastructure in place. And this could include a formal, routinely held, conferences in regional centers such as the multidisciplinary discussions at centers or via individual phone discussions, emails, review of the reports interpreted by other experts by electronic means. So the committee really deferred the exact modus operandi, the action of how the multidisciplinary discussion should occur to the actual format to the individual clinicians, clinics, and centers. Well, I think that that, you know, is a, uh, a very practical approach to that. So I think that that makes sense. Um, and I, I want to, as we're getting to the last few minutes of the podcast, and I thank you both for being on for so long and, and really discussing uh, the guideline in detail. I wanted to talk about, you know, the next steps and, and, and you conclude the guideline discussing the need to refine and validate diagnostic approaches in ILD. And you divided, um, the relevant future direction and research questions into several categories that I, I was hoping to go through. Um, and I, I do think that one of the greatest values of, of this sort of guideline is identifying the gaps in the data after you've done such an exhaustive review and def- deciding and defining what research questions need to be pursued. So I'd ask to talk, I, I, I'll ask you about the different categories, Ganesh, and ask for your opinion on, on at least, I know there's so many different things that can be done, but if you had to pick a certain thing that, that is the most important right now going forward um, in each of these categories. So first, let's start with clinical questions. 
Okay, Nitin, as you said, there are so many questions that need to be answered and it's rather difficult to narrow down, but I'll try. For the clinical questions, I think the number one clinical question is the optimal approach to exclude hypersensitivity pneumonitis. The specifics of the details of how you elicit the history and how you exclude exposures of environmental factors at home or outside the home need to be addressed and validated questions need to be developed. And that's the number one uh, foremost uh, clinical question that needs to be addressed, in my opinion. Okay. And, and for high-res CT? The high-resolution CT, hopefully the technique that we have provided will be much more important, but the frequency and the extent of the associated mosaic attenuation in patients with IPF and those with chronic hypersensitive pneumonitis need to be addressed. And then talking about bronchoscopy, as we did for some time with BAL as well as transbronchial biopsy. This uh, uh, is an important uh, uh, future uh, directions and uh, we're looking forward to newer ways of molecular probes, machine learning techniques with simpler diagnostic interventions, such as with the routine fibroctic bronchoscopy with lavage and transbronchial lung biopsy. I think that's the most important uh, future direction that needs to be addressed. Thank you. And this is sort of our rapid fire segment, I guess. And so uh, histopathology? The histopathology is not so much in terms of the uh, patterns, but the correlation of the severity of the lung functional impairment, disease behavior in response to the treatment with histopathology features needs to be addressed, especially those with the unclassifiable pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously we're in a time of exploding technology and there's a lot of interest in genetic markers. Well, precision medicine is the is the future. So if we are able to predict who is going to get what and how they are going to respond, that will be a magic marker, the so-called uh, karma, if you will. The genetic markers, of course, is an important uh, uh, future direction. The relationship between the mutations on the abnormal genetic markers and extrinsic environmental factors need to be addressed. Also, it needs to be addressed because the disease is elderly. Is there a role for genetic counseling for all patients with sporadic or familial IPF needs to be addressed for precision medicine? And then finally, other non-genetic uh, biomarkers. The, the, when we are talking about biomarkers, we are mainly addressing, I believe, circulating biomarkers uh, in the peripheral blood or other biomarkers, for example, including the HRCT scanning. The diagnostic molecular biomarkers, I think, are needed to be um, pursued to evaluate the diagnostic accuracy of the emerging uh, molecular biomarkers, as well as the clinical utility of this. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank both of you for this. And I just want to wrap up the podcast with a final question for Dr. Wilson. You know, it's been an exhaustive process, um, and I'd appreciate your final thoughts as you reflect on that process um, of the, the clinical guideline development. And I think our listeners do find it instructive to hear what you know drives your decision making as you're starting to develop the next update. Yeah, I think it was an exhaustive process, but very rewarding at the same time. When you're working on a guideline, you get to meet a lot of very um, interesting, driven, intelligent people uh, that share a common interest. So it's really, um, I, I would say that while everybody would agree that it was a lot of hard work, I think everybody came out pretty uh, satisfied with having been part of the process. In terms of, of updates, updates are, of guidelines are encouraged whenever new evidence emerges that, um, that may change the recommendation in the guideline. In, 
if a new evidence comes out, you can't really know for sure if it's going to change a recommendation because you have to synthesize it with all the other evidence that exists. But if you suspect that it might, that's the time to uh, update the guideline. So in the, in the case of treatment of IPF guideline that was updated in 2015, it was really emerging evidence in perfenidone and nintendomib that drove that, that update. In the case of the diagnosis guideline that we've just been talking about, it really was a lot of data emerging about high-resolution CT and how that is, um, how that does in predicting um, the UIP histopathology. I'm sure Ganesh could um, list a half dozen additional drivers, but that's the one that really stands out to me. Um, in the past, whenever a ATS guideline um, needed updated, it would require a new proposal to go through the assembly and committee uh, process, and it would be judged for its importance. And if um, deemed important, it would be approved. Now we have a new strategy where all guidelines that are published are going to be reviewed three to four years after publication by the relevant assembly chair as well as the co-chairs to look back at a guideline to see if it is time to update it, and if so, to, to get a process started. Well, I really want to thank both of you for taking the time for this is great discussion and, and obviously all the work you've done to put together this uh, clinical practice guideline. So to our listeners, you'll find the ATS, ERS, JRS, and ALAT clinical practice guideline on the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, either at atsjournals.org, but also in print in the 9-1-2018 issue of the journal. Please subscribe to the Out of the Blue podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Nitin Zim for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.